Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Royal Blue Podcast. I'm Phil Kirkbride, and today joined by Dave Prentice and Gav Buckland for a special reason. This is the first of two-part podcast discussing the 1980s, but not the great teams between 84, 87, that we all know and love and have read and written and seen so much about. That will come in time, of course. We will do dedicated podcasts to them. But what I wanted to know was, about the teams of the 80s that led to that great team. And then in the second part of the podcast we will do next week on the teams that came after, tried to live up to the expectations, but unfortunately were unable to. Um, so Gavin Prenner will talk us through the first part today, which is from 1980. Of course, we will, we will pick up on the 1st of January 1980 all the way to the end of 83. Uh, and we'll discuss the highs and lows and the makings, the foundations of what became a legendary Everton team under Howard Kendall. Um, chaps, so as I mentioned there, January the 1st, 1980, coming to the new decade. Gordon Lee is manager for the people who are listening who perhaps weren't aware. Um, a 1 0 home win over Nottingham Forest. All's well in, in the Blues world, is it not? <laughs> um, I probably wouldn't say all's well, no. I mean, I always think that Gordon Lee is unfairly maligned as an Everton manager. Uh, because he did give us two very, very positive, very optimistic seasons. That 77-78 season is a lot of people's favourite seasons, even though Everton won nothing, scored 76 league goals that year, the highest scorers in the top division, even higher than the Nottingham Forest team that actually ended up winning the league that year, and played with a real verb and a real style. Um, you know, the Thomas and Latchford uh, partnership was in, you know, and it's peak Martin Dobson and Andy King goal scoring midfielders it, you know it was that left side of you know Thomas Pedgick Dobson it was great to watch following season you know finished fourth which nowadays we bite your hand off for but you know then was a little bit of a disappointment but it was still a decent finish but it all went wrong from there for, for Gordon Lee and it's certainly at the start of you know the, the decade I think you know, you ask, you know, how whatever Tonyan's feeling at the start of the decade and probably bruised, I think, is the best phrase to use because we'd had that really bad experience in the FA Cup in 1980. I think had that incredible run, got through to a semi-final against a second division team, West Ham United. You know, we were favourites to go through and someone managed to screw that up. You know, Brian Kidd got himself sent off in the, uh, the first game. Uh, the replay at Ellen Road was, was tragic. And so Gordon Lee's hopes the following season, again, hinged on the FA Cup, and again, it was it was a great run. Beat Arsenal. That was the Arsenal team that had been to. I think it was three finals in a row. Beat them in the first game. Beat Liverpool in a, in a famous FA Cup tie. Southampton were a very, very good side then. Beat them too. And, you know, everything's looking great again. Manchester City at home in the quarters. 2-1 up with about five minutes to go. And then somehow spectacularly managed to make it all go wrong. Paul Power equalised. You know, we did a lot about him a couple of years' time. And uh, Kevin Ratcliffe got sent off in the last minute for, I think, headbutting Tommy Hutchison. So, you know, it all went pear-shaped from that point. Uh, I, I couldn't remember this, but I had a little look back on the uh, the results uh, on Steve Johnson's you know, sort of excellent uh, website. And we lost 
six of the next seven games, uh, five in a row after that game, one of which was the game where Joe Royal came back as a player for Norwich City and scored his last league goal and, uh, and was applauded off the pitch. So it was almost like so many hopes and expectations had been built around the FA Cup run. And when it came crashing down about our ears, the players didn't have the character, the strength, the spirit to bounce back from it. And uh, it just fell apart. Gordon Lee was quite deservedly sacked at the end of that season. And of course, you know, so Howard came in the saviour in, uh, in August 81. Gav, is that, you remember it, Gav? <laughs> Cheers, panel. <laughs> is, 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 that, is that how the mood was, Gav, from your point of view at the start? Yeah, of the yeah. I think, I think the last sort of 18 months of uh, reign, Gordon Lee's reign from January 80, uh, through to when he got sacked was all around cups. The, the team was not good enough to compete in uh, in the league. Um, I mean, 79-80, we nearly went down. There's a couple of late results kept us up. 80-81, we started reasonably well, if you remember, Brano. Two two consecutive games where we won 5-0 against Palace and uh, Coventry. Um, Palace the 80s, yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the time we got to the new year, we tanked in the league and uh, it was all about the FA Cup. Um, my two memories of that, that are the um, the game against Manchester City, which if you could if you could show a classic English FA Cup tie ever, it would be Everton Manchester City back to seven late of eighty one. Hundred miles an hour, both ends, really, really good, exciting game, full out. City had what must have had twelve thousand there, mostly. Yeah. And Gordon Lee's reign hinged on him Ray Verardi, didn't it? If you remember the two one, there was a back pass from Tommy Keaton. Verardi at the Gladys Street end and Kate, uh, Verardi uh, got the ball down to Joe Corrigan and Imre being Imre hit the side net and didn't he at 2-1 if he'd have scored there it's 3-1 Evan had lose in the semi-final uh, but as it happens as you say Paul Power you know strangely he scored in the and then um, he got beat 3-1 on the replay and the other one which is there's a bit of a strange link in this the game when I was talking about we got beat in the on Easter, Easter Saturday 2 0 around to Norwich when Joe yeah. Joe um, Joe said uh, Joe scored and he said afterwards in that Gordon Lee's position was going to be reviewed as manager and which basically said that they were going to sack him but I kind of was thinking that the same thing happened with Marcos didn't it when we got beat 2 exactly yeah. and if you have a look in 83-84 when we were struggling under Howard we, we got beat 2-0 at home by Norwich then in about November 83 <laughs> and the board kept the board kept faith in him and it's saying those three managers, their, their fates were sort of, sort of not decided, but hinged on 2 0 home defeats to Norwich, you know. And uh, we're kind of by, by the, the players had gone, haven't they? After the cup defeat by City, yeah. I think the new Gordon was going. Um, there was a there was quite a young team as well. Um, and it was just a matter of time. And I think uh, Gordon, he was a good, Gordon, I was thinking manager. You've got two tasks, haven't you? To get the best out of the players and the raw material you're given and then building a team in, in your own own style with your own players that you brought in. I think, you know, Gordon couldn't do that, could he? You know, something like Roberto Martinez couldn't do it either, could he? Lots of managers can't do it. The really good ones can do both. Like Moyes did that, didn't he? And, and that was good. That was Gordon as a manager. Good couple of years manager. But when he's got to do his own thing, struggled. And I think that's what happened to him. And um, he was he was a good manager, but nowhere near good enough to take Everton to success. No, he was he, he was okay. I mean, I always yeah. think I wrote about it again only last week. Bobby Robson 
how you know he came so close to becoming an Everton manager. I think it was 1977 when Gordon Lee was appointed. I mean, he was approached many times, four times, I think, by Everton to become manager. And uh, the second time in 1977, he actually agreed a contract, a phenomenal contract, you know, so a huge sum of money. And he'd asked the Everton board, I just want to be able to tell Patrick Cobbold, my owner back at Ipswich, that I'm going, please, you know, allow me to do that and I'll travel up tomorrow and I'll see you tomorrow. I'll be the Everton manager. Anyway, whether it was good journalism, whether there was a leak in the boardroom, I don't know. But one of the Nationals splashed the following day, Robson for Everton, and he felt offended. He felt that he'd not been allowed to tell his chairman first and his chairman had to read about it in the national press. So when he went to yeah. see Patrick Cobbold, he said, oh, well, I'm sorry to be leaving you, Bobby, or losing you, Bobby. Uh, and he said, well, I'm not going now. He says, I can't go to a football club that will do that to me. Now, we could have just been victims of good journalism then. We don't know. Uh, yeah. I think we don't know, but that Bobby Robson created that absolutely beautiful Ipswich team that was so easy on the eye and successful. He won an FA Cup, the UEFA Cup, the runners up in the first division twice. And you just think, what would he have done at Everton with the resources that Everton had at the time? Uh, not quite as you know so rich as they had been, but you know still able to spend significant sums of money. And it's one of those great what might have been stories. Although ironically, you know, so one of Gordon Lee's swan songs was against Bobby Robson's Ipswich which was right at the beginning of the 1980s. Um, we'd lost Dixie Dean, obviously, on March the 1st, 1980, yeah. uh, at a derby match. And uh, my mother-in-law, Barbara, actually took his ashes onto the pitch at Goodison Park and sprinkled them on the uh, on the pitch. Six days later, we played Ipswich Town at Goodison. And whether it's fate at work, I don't know. Maybe it's me being a bit overly romantic. But Bob Latch with the number nine, scored the opening goal that day. Big upset, really. Ipswich were massive favourites. Yeah. Brian Kidd, who had worn the number nine shirt, scored the second. We ended up winning 2-1. And, you know, so famous FA Cup victory. But in true Gordon Lee tradition, couldn't carry it through. Ended yeah. up failing in the semis. But, so, yeah, it was a great times. Yeah. We're having to that, that Ipswich had beaten us for from 4-0 the month before, Absolutely hadn't Absolutely battered us, um, yeah. And yeah. um, um, just show you how good Ipswich were at that time. The week before, when the derby game at Cuddleston, where Dixie died, they beat Manchester United 6 0, hadn't they? A court yeah. note and missed three penalties as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in, in, one, in one of the great pastings of my lifetime, you know. Yeah. But it was, it was, a, I, I think, I think it was quite, going back to your little question, I think by January the 1st, 80, Phil, I think mm. Lee, he was on borrowed time even then. Yeah, yeah. He'd done two and a half, he did, he'd done 33 years then, which as Prenner would tell you, it's normally about when you've done three years and ever manage, you normally there or thereabouts getting the air. Uh, Getting the bullet, and I think uh, you know Gordon was uh, Gordon was getting into that territory. So I think it was it was just a, it was a question of um, you know when not if I think unless he'd have won the FA Cup, which unfortunately he fell short on a couple of occasions. Yeah, because because of course, <clears throat> um, so at the end of the seventy nine eighty season, the team finished nineteenth. Is that right? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then obviously, the, 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 which I imagine was just hugely alarming to, to, to anybody at the time. But then the end of the second season, which proved Gordon's um, final season, uh, a run towards the end of one winning 13 games in all comps. It yeah. was like I say that that Manchester City defeat just absolutely crushed everybody around the football club, and, and it was hundred percent a question of when, not if. I think there was only one win towards the end of that you know season against Middlesbrough. The, the Middlesbrough, yeah, 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 and that effectively you know sort of kept our heads above water. But you know there was no way on God's earth that Gordon Lee could continue, and it was it, it was no surprise you know sort of when he did make way. 
it was just then a question of who was going to replace him. And um, you know, so obviously Howard was the guy that the, uh, the board turned to. And you know, in preparation for this, it's not that I always spend all my time on YouTube, but I actually sat and watched uh, Howard's first game again last night. I was there that day on the street, and I remember you know the excitement of you know Alan Bailey and what a good player Alan Ainsco looked, and how I felt called Mick Walsh actually could be a good player. That was Mick Walsh <laughs> defender, not Mick Walsh the forward. He was hopeless. Um, <laughs> But it, it was it was good to watch that again. And what struck me was it was an open game. It could have gone either way, but you know we ended up winning three one. But the crowd, the crowd actually were chanting Everton are back, Everton are back, and it was a sense of expectation even then that Everton was still one of the big names in English football and should not be you know troubling the lower uh, reaches of the football league. They should be challenging for trophies. And that was what Howard was told. That was his remit when he came. You know, so you're here to win things basically. Everton was still a club with huge expectation back then. What was the yeah, mood I mean, on, 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 on? Can I just ask what was the mood on the terraces then towards the end of, of, of Gordon Lee's reign? Was it, you know, was it as we've experienced it in recent years? Was 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 it toxic or or, or was it just indifferent? Or? No, no, it, it was weird then because football was very different then. It was flat. Yeah. It was stagnant. It was quiet. I think you're getting gigs of like fourteen and fifteen thousand. And you know, I remember standing on the street and being able to put your arm out and you know, so not touch somebody. It was, and fans just shoot. It was almost what, what's worse than toxicity is probably just you know, social distancing. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. P- people just basically losing faith in the entire football club. Uh, and it was, it was, it was a very, very flat, stagnant time. And you know, there yeah. were occasional boos and jeers and things, but nothing like the level of venom that you've seen in like sort yeah. of recent years because the crowds were so low, I suppose. Yeah, I joked earlier on this. We've got, you know, if you, if you were at Evans Sports in the 80s, you got used to six feet of uh, self-isolation because you could stand on the gladder seat, couldn't you? And the, the nearest person would literally be six yards away from you, you know? Yeah. I think you are right. There's a certain amount of apathy. You know, the, the elephant in the room here is, of course, that Liverpool was so successful. Yeah. But I think there, there was probably even more fatalism then than what there is even now. Um I always remember there was a boys in the black stuff, Alan Leesdale's classic study and drama of unemployment in the early 80s. I can't remember what one of the lines are all talking about, how bad things are. And one of them saying, that, said, could be worse, it could be an event fan. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and, you know, that, you know, the total despair, that was it. It could, it could be worse, it could be an event fan, you know. And there was sort of that dark humour, I think, that was attached to it as well. And, then I was right. I mean, we spent, you know, just to show. I mean, we still lit, would start the closest season. We was in '81. We spent massive amounts of money in the summer of 1981, bringing in the so-called Magnificent Seven. Um, I can't. I, I don't know what you'd add up the fees to, but I would imagine it'd be somewhere around 1.5 million, something like that. Which was a big, you know, Howard famously wanted to blow the entire budget on uh, Brian Robson, didn't he? But but Ron Atkinson from West Brom, but Ron Atkinson wouldn't sell him. I think I was thought that Ron knew he was getting the Man United job and thought, um, you know, as soon as he'd leave uh, West Brom, he'd take Brian Robson with him. Which is exactly what happened, of course, yeah. didn't it? And so, yeah, kind of like there was a bit of, uh, you know, Howard, people were old enough to remember him as a player. He'd done well at Blackburn. He promoted from the third division, and he to the second year. He got into the top flight the year before. So there was a big mood of optimism. How that it was a roasting hot day as well, you know, the classic <laughs> open day of the season. Um, and you had all the players in who, in retrospect, when you when kind of when you look at those players now, and I know you want to talk about Steve McMahon particularly, most of them were in, most of them were inferior to the players that we had at the club at the time. 
Well, no, if you think about the, the Magnificent Seven, you're looking at them. Yeah. The only one was magnificent, and that was Neville. And, and Neville wasn't even playing at the time. You know, so Jim yeah. Arnold was his number one goalkeeper. Neville was, uh, you know, a reserve that could be decent halfway down the line. Mick Walsh was okay, the centre-back, you know, so not better than what we had, but he was okay. Alan Ainsco was okay. Mick Ferguson was the one that really excited me to a degree because he had a great goal-scoring record. And was it... Yeah. Bossingham Forest took him uh, from Coventry for about 900 grand, I think it was, which was a lot of money back in the day. Uh, I think we got him for a fraction of that. But he had a great goal-scoring record. But this this is genuine. This is a centre-forward called Ferguson, who was too big for his boots. Yeah. He, had, he had lots and lots of ankle injuries and all kinds of, you know, so muscular injuries, he was so lower down, and it subsequently transpired that because he had like some like size four feet, which apparently were in, yeah. feet, which were too small for his frame. He was a big lad, he's like a six foot two, six foot three. And they reckon that all his injuries came about as a result of his having small feet for such a big frame. And um, nah. so you see, he scored a few goals for us, you know, so early on he scored one at Anfield, didn't he, in the uh, nah. in a 3-1 defeat. Uh, but we could never get a run of fixtures going. So he was never going to be the answer because he just wasn't fit enough. Mickey Thomas, he only lasted six months before he you know, ended up being doing what Mickey Thomas does, upsetting the manager and getting sold. Uh, yeah. it, was, it was just seven absolutely bizarre signings. Alan Bailey, of course, scored in his first two games. And then again, you know, so just blew up. There's a story that Howard wasn't happy with his performance at Ellen's Road in the second game and absolutely slaughtered him on the team coach on the way back. Mm. And it was vicious, you know, so really over the time in front of all the other players. And he never actually recovered from that, you know, so just went into his shell and never really recovered. So yeah, seven players that, you know, so just basically never really worked out. Um, Let me talk about them before we talk about McMahon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, there's a couple of things there that I would say is, Tim Arnold was actually a very good goalkeeper in yeah, that sh- yeah. shadow, but Tim Arnold was an excellent keeper. It would have been a decent sign and if they'd not bought South or he would have been yeah. a guard. And Mickey Thomas, it's, it's well worth looking at this film from uh, sort of a, a young, you know, Howard's what? He was 35 hours when he took over, wasn't he? So he was a relatively young manager. I mean, he probably, he'd probably only be four or five years older than some of the players, wouldn't he? And okay, uh, Mickey Thomas, the story is well worth telling is that Mickey Thomas, who was a you know obviously legend for lots of different reasons, shall we say, refused to play in the reserve games, didn't he? And um, Howard effectively said, "Well, if you don't want to play for the same game, you don't want to play for Everton, I'm offloading you." And he did. And um, I think that was Howard at a very early early part of his tenure putting his marker down, wasn't it, to the players that I'm not somebody you're going to mess with. But Thomas was actually at reasonably big. All of the players, he'd nationally be the most uh, most well-known, wouldn't he? Yeah. And um, had a highest profile. And Howard said straight away, right, you're off. Okay, we'll yeah. take a loss. But yeah, if you're not, don't, don't want to play for the save, don't want to play for Everton, right, get off. And I, I thought that was, that was strong management there by Howard that I think I think would not have got unnoticed in the in the dressing room. Even though Howard, you know, he's very affable and everybody says he's a great boss. That was I thought that was good management by Howard at the time, like you're off. Yeah, we were straight to him, definitely. I've heard him say that many times. Uh, when he went to Manchester City, I think I forget which player it was, but one player had basically spoken out of turn and Howard leapt upon that a great opportunity to put the marker down and to show the players exactly what I think. And he, and he did it regularly, you know, when he came back to Everson second time, Mike Milligan. I remember him telling all the, uh, the press at the time that, you know, so he was going to move Mike Milligan on. And uh, somebody said to him, he said, well, what if he doesn't want to leave? 
And he just says, don't worry, son. When he's playing for the A-team on a Friday night at Morecambe, he'll want to leave. And he does. He could be absolutely yeah. ruthless when he wants yeah. to leave. And, uh, uh, and, but how was an 81 was different to 91, though? He's still, yeah. he was still learning, learning his trade, wasn't he? And I, I yeah, thought yeah. that was really, really top management. But we mentioned a few of the players at the time, Phil, we still had the life, even though we had brought those the players, we still had quite a lot of good young players in and around the squad. Kind of, we were talking about Steve McMahon maybe before the yeah. before we kicked off, as it were. Uh, who had then done a season at Evan, hugely, hugely promising. Um, can I just roll back as well to the, the um to the 80 81 season, Gordon Lee's last, because in this story that we're trying to tell about the foundations being built for the great Everton team, um, am I right in saying that it was in that season that Graham Sharp signed and made yeah. his debut? Yeah, yeah, he signed, but he was he was very rarely used, was he? You know, so in and out of the team quite quite a lot in the very early days. I mean, you certainly wouldn't have had him down as a cornerstone of one of the, of the great Everton team at the time. He was okay. He was promising. Um, certainly probably didn't show the promise that maybe Dominic Calvert-Lewin is showing now. Um, he looked like a, a young striker who was desperately in need of confidence at the time. And to me, the biggest turning point in Graham Sharp's whole career was an Andy Gray signed. And uh, you know, Andy Gray took him under his wing and basically showed him so many tricks, brought him out of his shell. Uh, you know, great talent, but, you know, maybe lacked the, uh, the the character to actually express it at that time. Uh, again, in the name of research, watching another old game the other night against Luton Town, the 5-0 win, which was, was that 83, late 82, early 83? 83, yeah. And Sharkey came off the bench that day. David Johnson uh, was actually in the team ahead of him. And, you know, God bless David Johnson. He'd been a very, very good player for Everson in the early 70s and an excellent player for Ipswich and Liverpool. But he was way past his best when he came back to Everson uh, in the early 80s. And for him to be keeping Graham Sharp out of the team, underlined what Sharkey wasn't doing at the time. Probably of the players at the, at the club who you could say were cornerstones, Mark Higgins probably, you know, was a cornerstone and would have yeah. been for injury wreck in his career you know so in that 83-84 campaign he was at the club already um, I can't think of many others that were that, that would become you know so cornerstones there was a big rebuilding job that Howard had to do well I think they were all in the reserves weren't they I mean I think Kevin Ratcliffe was there wasn't he yeah, yeah Kevin Richard I mean I think I think I mentioned this to you before Phil this is he turns up at Everton reserves say early early on in Howard's first season You'd see, you'd see a, a reserve lineup that had Neville Southall in it, Kevin Ratcliffe, Gary Stevens, Graham Sharp, Kevin Richardson were all in Everton reserves all yeah. at the same time. I think John Bailey was still because John Bailey being yeah. dropped out because he played playing play Mick Walsh at left back. Yeah. So you could you could see you could all them players and I mean this is one of the reasons why we're playing on we're all in Colonardi's reserve team, maybe. And uh, when you see our reserve team results at the start of that season, like they were all really good. I, I seen uh, Kevin Richardson score five <laughs> against Blackburn reserves, and Kevin was a midfielder. You know, I mean, I've, you're talking of all the young players in the club at that time around eighty one, eighty one. The one he thought was going to be the biggest star was Kevin Richardson. Yeah, strangely enough, which is which is which is quite bizarre. And he did become a, a hugely successful player yeah. across three, three or four different clubs. But he was the one that he thought was going to be the big, the really big star. Well, the, the one to me that stood out like a beacon was Steve McMahon, who, yeah. uh, you know, so being a ball boy famously at Everton and broke through into the first team, 
round about that era, 79, 80, round then. And he was everything you want in a central midfielder back then. He was aggressive, spiky, polished, could score goals, scored a cracker against Ipswich, I think it was, in a, in a League Cup tie that we got yeah. beaten. Uh, but he was, he was, um, he was, you know, proper leadership material. And at that time, he'd probably better than the players you know, so that, that were surrounding him, which is why he ended up wanting to leave the club. But I just wonder what would have happened in Everson's history you know, so if he'd have stayed around. Because he was such a good player and he wanted to move on because he, he was ambitious, he wanted to win trophies. So he went to the champions, Aston Villa, the European Cup holders, just as they were on the downslide and it won nothing. That was why he ended up at Liverpool then and why such enmity you know, so between him and the Everson fans developed. But he was such a good player that I'm thinking... If he'd have stayed at the football club, what would have happened? Would Peter Reid have been signed in '82? You know, so maybe not. And you know, Reid is a genuine Everton legend, and you know, so a huge part of that great team. If he had have maybe you know, so also signed Peter Reid, what would Peter Reid and Steve McMahon have been like as a central midfield partnership? Arguably magnificent, but football's all about balance. And that means yeah. that then Paul Bracewell wouldn't have arrived. And Bracewell and Reid were so beautifully balanced as a partnership, they provided such you know, so aggression, guile, they're absolutely good yeah. pressing as well. They led the press, you know, so from the middle of the park. And would it have worked as well with McMahon alongside Peter Reid? I'm not so sure it would. So, I don't know, maybe all, all parties... I think he would, I, yeah, like. I agree. I think he would have been a bit light, I think, defensively. I know McMahon would push up, wouldn't he? But if you got Trevor Stephen pushing up at the same time and Kevin Sheedy, you'd have made yourself vulnerable. I mean, McMahon was, you know, if you watch, you've alluded to it before, Preno, the, the, the FA Cup game against Liverpool in 1981. Yeah. I could, so Mac, McMahon, who's, what, 20, up yeah. against Liverpool midfield of McDermott and Sunes. Absolutely yeah. top quality players. And he doesn't look out of place at all. He's competing. He, he, it's it sort of, it, 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 it sort of like shows you what a great player. I mean, I'm not say great player, but he'd be a top class player. He'd be paid. Yeah. But I think it was right. I think, I think, I remember hearing the story at the time in 83. I think one of the arguments was over money, wasn't it? That he wasn't getting paid enough compared to some of the players that Howard had brought in. And I think there was that, that sort of rumour, wasn't it? That actually Liverpool wanted to buy him, didn't he, in 83, but we wouldn't sell him to Liverpool. So we ended yeah. up selling him to Aston Villa to, so they could sell him to Liverpool, you know? And because you imagine there would have been ructions, wouldn't there, in 83 if you saw McMahon to, to Liverpool? Um, but he was, he was a great player. But I think. Um, but I think maybe in 84, 85, he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have had the right balance in midfield, as you say, I think. The one that really bemuses me, who was an absolute top-class midfielder at that time and never really worked, Asa Hartford, who was so yeah. good for a couple of seasons at Everton. And again, big money signing, I think Nottingham Forest again, Brian Clough bought him for 500 grand, never worked out there. Uh, so, you know, so Everson took him and he was a great midfielder. He used to have back then the Echo Man of the Match Awards and it almost became like a stand-in joke. It was just Hartford week after week after week. Uh, and, and he was an excellent footballer, but never seemed to work out properly at Everson. Did a, you know, he was symptomatic of that very, very early 80s era. And I think he, he, if, if he hadn't gone by the time that Howard arrived, he certainly went very soon afterwards. I think he started the, that season, didn't he, 81-82? Yeah. And yeah. He, went, he went to... Uh, that's right, against Birmingham, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think City, but if you watch the famous 1980s documentary about City, Peter Swales was talking to Malcolm Allison, isn't he? And Swales was saying, Can we get Issa Arthur back from Everton? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he did he did eventually go back, you know. But I think Ace was one of them. Was 
think some of the senior pros in Gordon's last sort of 12 months maybe down to a little bit only played when he wanted to, you know. Um, yeah. So I think there's an absence of morale in, in, in the dressing room. But yeah, Ace was tough. I mean, maybe reaching the end of his career, but I always felt he was a bit in and out for me. Yeah. Um, but there was, there, was a, there was a few. I mean, I thought a Cracken player was, I thought Paul Lodge was a really good player. He was a young yeah. lad who'd come in, didn't he? I thought he was really good. But we still had, we still had some of the remnants of the, the Leera, 81. Billy Wright was still around, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Mark Higgins. But it was, you know what, Phil? I think it's a bit like what I always say to you is that I think we had a lot of young players and a lot of old players, but not a lot in between at the at the peak of their career, you know. Yeah, can I yeah. throw the, the, the original Seamus Coleman in there as well as one of those players that you know sort of might have made it but didn't quite? John Barton, who was a, yeah. a great story. He was just like Seamus Coleman. He was signed from a non-league Worcester City. For about forty grand, I think it was. It was it was a nominal yeah. transfer fee, um, and everyone thought, well, "What have we got here?" And he was an archetypal Seamus Coleman. He was a marauding, buccaneering right back, great going forward, not bad defensively, and it was an absolute steal. Uh, it was an area when you could do that. Eamon O'Keefe was another one that we bought from non-league from Mosley. It was decent as well. Yeah. Became a Republic of Ireland international, and uh, Barton was looking like he was going to become a really decent uh, right back, and then horribly broke his leg. Uh, broke his leg in a couple of places. And it was yeah. like, it's so really unfortunate. And uh, was never quite the same player again after that. Uh, but yeah, you look back on that era with you know some fondness for some players, but you know, the overall picture was uh, was pretty bleak, to be honest. I was, I was going to say 81 82, Gav um, finished eighth, 82 83 finished seventh. Can, yeah. can you kind of give us an idea as best you can of maybe the, the, the feeling? You know, at board level, was, was there was a sense that was there a sense of confidence from what you could feel in on the stands? And there, there was there was a sense that how it needed time. If you read what was what the board were offering at the time, I think they did realise how it was a promising young manager. He brought in on that basis, and it was going to take time to turn things around because you were a bit of a mess, uh, to be honest with you, in the summer of eighty one. Um, and I think eighty one, eighty two, we in a strange way, Howard's. What what helped Howard is 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 that his signings didn't work in the summer of eighty one, so he's forced into bringing some of the younger players through probably a little bit ahead of the time. I mean, Gary Stevens kept Kevin Ackley being in and out of the team, uh, Graham Shaw, Kevin Richardson, Alan Irvin, another winger, who obviously coached the club. He, he made his debut in that season. All came through, I think maybe a year or two before I did one could do. So we, we, we started the season easy. we've had a horrible period mid-year and ended up like Howard we always say this Beno, don't we Howard teams always finish the season well very much so and yeah. I, think we, I think we won five out of the last six 81-82 and ended up finishing as I say seventh or eighth following year it was pretty similar we we started reasonably well we signed Kevin Sheedy who I think is worth mentioning in the summer of 82 yeah. and you know when you just see a player straight away first game think he's a good player in. I think the first two home games in 82 is the season. We beat Villa, who were European champions, 5 0 at Goodison. Yeah. And we beat uh, Spurs, who were obviously the top team at the time, Steve Wonky, Dave Blake, and you thought we're, we're onto something there. You know? Then next week we got beat at Notts County 1 0, and it was sort of. Mm. But 82 83 followed a similar pattern. Started off reasonably well, similar pattern to 81 82. Started reasonably well. Had the horrible periods to include the like an infamous Derby defeat, which I'm talking about. Yeah, plus and then, yeah. yeah. It, it got into early 83 and we, we got a bit of a cut run go, going. 
like we like we beat Arsenal, who'd won the cup the previous two years in eighty one. We beat Spurs, didn't we? He's won the cup in the previous two two years. And then we go to Old Trafford in March eighty three, which is still is still one of my favourite Everton games I've ever attended in terms of you know, in terms of atmosphere and and uh, the way the team performed and stuff like this, big occasion. Fifty-eight thousand, fifty-eight thousand, fifteen thousand Everton fans, and um, we we, get, we got beat one 0 um, in the last minute to me Frank Stapleton. But you could you could see then things were we, we signed in. She had me uh, the year before. You could see. It, I know it's easy in retrospect then, but if you see that team, the March eighty-three team against Man United, you can see things bubbling under quite a lot of the you know. Um, Things have taken shape, and uh, we finished the season really strongly again. Won five of the last six, um, including the infamous, the, the great game of Brighton, which is always worth uh, talking about on uh, Grand National Day. Where I think uh, Clive Thomas, obviously infamous, but no one on match of the day. Um, we're winning one 0 going to the last minute. They get, gives them a needless penalty. Jim Arnold saves it. You know, does what nobody did at the time. Orders a retake us. Jim Arnold, uh, the Jim Arnold moved, he said. They scored to make it one all. They're trying to save themselves from relegation. Then this allows one of their goals for no reason at all. And then last kick of the game, we went up the other end, didn't we? Kevin G, they scored to win 2 1. And we finished that season really strongly, 82 83. And you're thinking, yeah, we finished, as you say, Phil finished seventh and signs of progress. So by 83, I think the board probably thought, yeah, we're making pr- progression here. I think Harry Catsick said that he had the he had he had the best band, you know, band of youngsters in 82, 83, that he had since the you know the end of the sixties, you know, the the team that won the title in seventy. So I think there was a lot of hope at the end of that that Howard's first two years that we had we had a good group of players who could who could take us forward. Well, he's also, he was quite fortunate in some respects as well. I mean, fate works in a strange way. But you think about some of the players that he brought in. Uh, I mean, Adrian Heath was a huge transfer fee, record transfer yeah. fee, 700 grand at the time. But the club was cash-strapped. We had problems after that. I mean, Terry Curran yeah. came in and famously had this, like, really, you know, sort of extravagant loan spell. Uh, but we couldn't afford to sign him permanently. Uh, you know, the, the club, you know, the fans chanting sign him up and they just couldn't basically afford him. So we had to go scraping around the bargain basement for players. Yeah. Kevin Sheedy was cheap. He was 100 grand from Liverpool. Peter Reid cost 60 grand. So Peter Reid had been a great player for Bolton, but again, had dreadful injuries. Uh, Arsenal wanted to sign him for 600 grand at the time. And uh, that fell down. Uh, but as a result of the various injuries, Everton got him on a bargain, you know, so not near the end of his career. He was 26, 27. But then Andy Gray, I mean, was it January 1983 when he arrived? His debut against Nottingham Forest. It was October 1983. December, January. Go back to your point about being skinned. Mm. You famously have to change the bank, didn't you? Because the bank wouldn't yeah. give him 60 grand for Peter B. So they changed yeah. the bank to it, to a yeah. bank that likes to say yes. I think, <laughs> uh, you know, to uh, yeah. to quote one of the adverts at the time, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So they bought, they bought Reed, didn't he? Um, and, and we tried to sign Reed that mean the summer of 80 I think Ray was prepared to pay 600 grand for him yeah, which yeah. is just mad you know when it comes to think we got him for 60 well, the, the, again, the, the, sorry Phil go on I was just going to say you know when we when we look back at and reminisce about any era it's always the, the fascinating thing about players we missed out on is there anybody yeah. that always stands out from the early 80s that, that maybe Howard tried to sign but just couldn't get 
Oh gosh, he was a real wheeler dealer, Howard. Uh, I mean, obviously Brian Robson's the one that you know Gavin mentioned yeah. earlier that would have been an astonishing signing, but you know, so that never looked uh, likely. Um, it was the guy Paul Maguire uh, from Shrewsbury. Shrewsbury, he had on loan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they started to start that fall too because he was injured, didn't he? I tell you how he was signed by. He's signed by Nicky from Manchester City. Right, so okay, good yeah, 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 really like Nicky Dees from Man yeah. City. Um, the other one which will come, well, we might as well mention it now about the famous one with Spano, but I think you're probably the working then, was, was when he tried to sign uh, Nunes, the, the lad from Brazil, wasn't it? I'm not I sure they ever did, you know. I, I think that might have been a little bit of creativity from some of our friends in the national newspapers. That yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's always where it's all. I think this was around the time, wasn't it, when we were struggling at the start of the 84 season, Phil. And yeah. I think, I can't even remember Nunes. He was a Brazilian striker, wasn't he? I can't remember the, the, the wise yeah. way forward. I think, uh, didn't, didn't Howard say, yeah, I think Howard was rumoured, and then I think he subsequently said, I got a bit worried there. He went playing in the middle of the Brazilian summer. He had gloves on, didn't he? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and that was one of the more entertaining, uh, entertaining transfer tales. But, as Benno says quite rightly, is we're willing to him because we brought Andy King um, to the club back in 1982, one of Benno's favourite players. But that's only because I think Peter Eastow went the other way, didn't he? Yeah. Peter Eastow, yeah. worth mentioning, it was a very, very fine striker. Yeah. You know, I spoke before about players that he brought in under Howard's way and a couple of players he had. Mick Ferguson or Alan Barley weren't half as good as what Peter Eastow was, you know. Yeah. And... Um, so we had, so we were always doing it was always loans and uh, exchanges and we only bought Sarah Stephen in the summer of eighty three because we basically used the McMahon fee for that didn't we um, two hundred and fifty k or three hundred grand we got for McMahon we yeah. used for, for Sarah Stephen which is probably pretty good business I think for everybody. It was, although again, Trevor Stephen was an absolute, you know, sort of child at the time. He was, uh, you know, sort of a very, very young footballer. I always remember you talking about expectations and stuff. Was it the start of the 83 84 season where we beat Stoke 1 0 in the opening yeah. day? And, uh, you know, there was, like you said, a lot of gallows humour around at the time. And no one ever expected Everton to win anything, you know, so around then. Uh, even their expectation levels, you know, so were high. I always remember, you know, walking away from the ground, having beaten Stoke 1 0 on the opening day and hearing somebody say, Oh, well, another season, we're not going to win the league. And it was like a laughing <laughs> joke. And everybody started yeah. laughing and said, oh, yeah, yeah, good one, good one. But we won the FA Cup that year. And that yeah. was the catalyst, you know, so to what then followed. So, no, yeah, it, did a, it came from nowhere, really. No one really expected that to happen. No, no. Of course, Bernard, sorry, sorry, Gav, I was, I was going to say, because, yeah. of course, as we, as we end um, the parameters of this podcast, which is December 31st, uh, 83. I think we yeah. were, were we 16th after a nil-nil oh, with Coventry. Well, that was Coventry. I was there. That that is the famous yeah. game. I know that was it was it was a dreadful, dreadful experience. Um, we'd beaten them one-nil in the League Cup earlier. Um, sorry, two-one in the League two Cup one. earlier. Uh, when again there were like about eight thousand there, and uh, I think the the gate was round about the same for a New Year's Eve game. And you know you can hear the players shouting. You know, so that was how sparse it was. And again, talking about you know apathy, you know, sort of being almost as bad as you know toxicity. It was a bit of both that day, uh, because you know, so no, no one could see any kind of progress. You know, we'd had we started the season very, very badly, and if we talk about Gordon Lee, his reign revolving around you know unsuccessful cup runs, you could argue you know that Howard's reign was actually you know sort of kept afloat on two cup runs the league cup run that kept us going Coventry were one nil down with about you know sort of 10 minutes to go came back and won two one 
and then ended up, you know, got through the famous back pass at Oxford and all that, you know, so I ended up going to Wembley in that competition. And that just seemed to breed a little bit of confidence, which we then took into the FA Cup, similar kind of run there, ended up winning the Cup. And so, yeah, you know, and ended that season very, very well. But, you know, so how much rain was, you know, really kept buoyant, I suppose, by two Cup runs that started it was, around about then? It was, wasn't it? It was that, it was that. We, we, really, so we couldn't score goals, I think, the first 21 league games. I think we scored 11 goals. But there was even passes within that. We won 1-0 one, one at Man United who were top in, yeah. in the December. So there were some good performances um, on occasions, but... The pivotal week, wasn't it, which was the week, the first week of November '83, where we uh, we played Liverpool live on the Sunday on ITV, and we got three 0 copied three 0 and uh, I always remember like on the low points being Everton fan. I was on the cop, I'm walking down this back entry, uh, Anfield. And there was two lads who were about eight playing football, giving me loads of stick, <laughs> you know, like, like you know. Yeah, I just thought, like, you know, I've had a target based on this. And, of course, what happened then is Colin was promoted, wasn't he, from reserve team coach to first team coach, I think, on the on the, on the, on the Wednesday. And I think we played Coventry on the same day or the, um, at Goodison. 1-2-1. One, one. The, the pivotal thing within that, which is probably a bit more more significant um, than, than it seemed at the time, was Peter Reid hadn't played. Peter Reid hadn't played on the Sunday, and it's the famous story, isn't it? And I, I it's not, I, I, this is true because I heard it. Ian St. John used to have that radio show, didn't he? Ian St. John's World of Soccer in Radio yeah. City. And somebody phoned up after the derby and said, um, Why isn't Peter Reid getting a game for Evan? And then this going on. I think St. John, because he was quite savvy, he'd been working in Tally for a radio for a while, realised there was something going on and said, uh, Who's this? Who's this? It's your need for pieces. And of course, Reedy came on the sub against Coventry, turned the game, and then just stayed in the team. And then, of course, on the Thursday, uh, it was Andy Gray signed, didn't he? Which, of course, the echo got wind of, didn't he? Famously. But it was, it was Ken Rogers was the, uh, the Everton, Everton writer at the time. And uh, somebody rang the office, and it used to happen quite a bit. And I remember yeah. somebody ringing once and saying, I've just seen George Weir at Lime Street. And, uh, you know, so. <laughs> Quite often you would like check these out, but yeah, it was a genuine phone call, and uh, you know, we said I've just seen Andy Gray outside Goodison Park. Are we signing him? And Ken's like, well, I'll make inquiries. So he rang Jim Greenwood, who was the the club secretary at the time, and says, Jim, you know, so I've just had a tip that you might be trying to sign, uh, you know, so Andy Gray. And I think in it, Jim goes quiet, and he just says. Might need to bring me back in an hour or so, Ken. Whoa! <laughs> so he did. He got things ready and he got the exclusive. Yeah. That day. But yeah, but wasn't it? Wasn't it the fellow who had, he had the sweet shot? Did he by, uh, by Goodison and Andy Gray came in to need to buy a newspaper? Is that I, think, was, yeah. I think he was. He was the one who phoned. Uh, yeah. He was one of the phone Ken up. You know, it was just the legends itself. So that was the Thursday, yeah. and I think Howard being Howard, he could, if he made the deal permanent on the Thursday, he couldn't play on the Saturday. So we actually signed him on loan for the day, didn't we? Yeah. So we could play on the uh, one of weird rules. We signed him on the uh, on on the Thursday on loan, so we could play on the Saturday. Then made the payment. That was a, that was a great tale. Was, was that Nottingham Forest though? Is yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was influential that day as well. I mean, he never scored, but he created the goal. I think was it for Adrian Heath or you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and he was, he was such an inspired signing. I know, you know, people treat him as a bit of a Marmite character nowadays, but Andy Gray will always be a footballing hero for me for what he was, you know, so to that Everton team at that era. He was only there for 18 months, but the influence he exerted on that team was massive in terms of his quality as a footballer. He's a player who cost one and a half million quid only a couple of years previously. Um, he'd been the PFA Player of the Year, the Young Player of the Year. You know, he was an absolute top-class centre-forward, ravaged by injuries. But more than that, it was his force of personality. You look at all the goals Everton scored during the glory era, and you look at who's first there celebrating with the goal scorer every time it's Andy Gray. He was such an infectious personality. Uh, he looked off on Graham Sharp and taught Graham Sharp an awful lot about good centre-forward play. But he just gave that squad confidence. You know, I mean, lots and lots of significant signings. You, could, you couldn't say that he was more influential than Peter Reid or Kevin Sheedy or Trevor Stephen. But, you know, in terms of his personality, he was a proper leader. You know, so And he did make a massive difference to that team. Uh, and I love that man as a result of what he did then. Yeah, but by December 83, we're not really feeling that, are we? Because we <laughs> the country game, yeah. yeah. We played Sunderland's and Boxing Day, and that was yeah. a desperate nil-nil draw as well, you yeah. know. The, the, the significance about 83, 84 as well, if you have a look at it before Christmas, as you say, what did you say, Phil? We were 16th, were we? 16th, yeah. I believe, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, think, I think we'd only conceded 21 goals in 21 league games. So, how has it got the defence like? The team's problem is scoring goals. So, as soon as the team started scoring goals, you, need, you know, I'd see to look back on now, but that's when we'll start winning games, you know. Yeah. But it was, yeah, it was that. I mean, you didn't think that 31st of March, 31st of December. I mean, there was a couple of days later, I remember coming back and, and the radio was on, wasn't it? And the member panel, the story was uh, Mike England was going to be manager, wasn't it? There was yeah. a leak to the uh, there was a leak to the press and radio, wasn't it? That uh, Mike England, who was the then Wales manager, was going to be the next Everton boss. And I don't think Howard was. Uh, He's too happy about that, was he? Whether it was true or not, it's a different story. Well, not so much Howard. I think uh, the board were unhappy as well. I mean, so yeah. Philip Carter came out, you know, because the press basically, quite rightly, you know, so thought that Howard was under pressure. I mean, I, yeah. I remember that era very, very well. I mean, Howard lived just around the corner from where I am now, and the bottom of his uh, his road had graffiti daubed on the uh, on the nameplate, and uh, his garage doors had graffiti daubed yeah. on them, you know, so a candle out. And uh, he stayed very, very brave and dignified throughout all that. Uh, but the press making inquiries of Philip Carter, and Philip Carter gave him, you know, sort of the dreaded vote of confidence. And when it was taken, the way all votes of confidence were at the time, you know, oh, that's it, then he must be on his way. He got very angry and said, no, no, I mean it. You know, so I mean it, you know, so we're fully behind Howard Kendall. We know what he's trying to do. And he was, he was genuine in his support for him. And, you know, that, that afterwards. was justified, you know, so very, very soon afterwards. To be fair to Sir Philip, or Philip as it was at the time. He went in he went in print in the Daily Express, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And he did a piece yeah. for the Daily Express where he said about Howard and uh, on the board of backing him, which was took a lot of bottle. Yeah. Especially because it was a little bit toxic at Goodison at the time for the uh, the thirteen thousands we go most weeks, you know. It was I mean I was I was working for the Formby Times at the time and I remember uh, my editor asking me to go round to, to Howard's house and do a piece, you know, with his then wife, Cynthia, you know, basically asking about her wife as a football widow, you know, basically, you know, how she never sees him and, you know, so what's life like, you know, so, you know, at home there. A lo- lovely lady. Uh, but she was telling me about that era and saying that, yeah, you know, it was very, very hard for him. He used to have to go in 
in the morning and, you know, feeling down, feeling, you know, so really low and steal himself before he drove over the threshold of Belfield and basically force a smile on his face. Typically, he's a very cheery character, Howard. He was very, very yeah, happy. Yeah, he must have been feeling the pressure so much then. And he did. He actually physically had to make himself feel upbeat and buoyant just so, you know, his mood didn't, you know, sort of transmit to the players around the uh, training ground at the time. Yeah. It was interesting, you know, we'll probably talk about this in the next podcast is, I think, he still had the scars of that for many years afterwards. I don't think he forgot that about that period. I think yeah. it took many years for that period to sort of, you know, sort of go, you know, sort of get over it. I don't, I don't, I, I think he always, even in the glory days, I think he always remembered that period. And I think uh, it took, you know, if you think about the abuse he got and all that, he said he complained. If you played charity matches, you'd always play centre mid, wouldn't he? Because if it went that bad, the touchline, you get a load of stiff, you know. And I think. <laughs> I think he didn't forget that even during the glory years. I think there was still like that little bit of edginess about that period as well. Brilliant. Well, that's uh, that's been great, chaps. Really enjoyed that. Hopefully, uh, for everybody listening, that's been some lovely insight and uh, anecdotes and colour about um, perhaps a period of the eighties in Everton's history that perhaps doesn't get. Uh, Talked about very often, but for good reason, no doubt, as, uh, as, as you've explained here. So, um, as said at the top of the podcast, the idea is that the second podcast in this two-parter that we will record next week will look at the teams that followed the great Everton team. That, of course, we've talked about uh, how that got built today, and, and, and we will talk about the teams that followed or tried to follow and emulate um, the great team, sort of 84 through 87. Um but Gav Preno, thank you very much. Really enjoyed that. And uh, yeah. hopefully everybody listening has enjoyed that too and allowed some uh, some for some reminiscing in, uh, in, a, in a strange time and uh, hopefully some uh, new anecdotes and new information. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.